when we when we looked at each loan at the loan level analysis, it was what's it going to take for this property to default on a loan? And if you think there's any significant probability, you don't like that loan, you kick it out of the pool. But if it does default, you know, how much are, are we actually going to lose as the lender? And that, that formed a lot of my mentality going into real estate, which is how can I avoid default? I think I've mentioned the statistic a bunch of times. People ask the data I looked at was from Trepp and Reese. Over 90% of Great Recession era loans that defaulted were at the balloon. It's very easy to make term payments, even if you have to kick in a little bit of capital. But when the market's gone down, you've got to do a refinance because the balloon on the loan hits and your property doesn't appraise. You're talking about bringing significant amounts of cash to the table. And that's where the majority of defaults happen. And that forms a lot of my outlook. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers and I wanna thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Fort Capital is a privately owned real estate firm in the great state of Texas. We buy Class B industrial across all the major markets. We are committed to technology. We have a world-class culture. And more than anything, we are a forward-thinking company. If you want to stay in the know on all things going on at Fort Capital, visit us at fortcapitallp.com, follow us on LinkedIn, or subscribe to this podcast. Fort Capital's quarterly newsletter subscribers are the first to receive business and real estate insights, news, videos, podcasts, free resources, and more. Enjoy the show. Mark Gilbert, retweet legend and a good friend of mine. Welcome to the show today. I've been so excited about this one. Thank you very much, Chris. You've done is pretty amazing, and uh, you know I'm excited. Let's start uh, the conversation with a trip that you, uh, an abroad trip that you did to Israel when you were young, and. Talk to us about that experience and kind of how it shaped your kind of view of, of the world and how you operate your real estate business today. So, yeah, uh, upon graduating high school, uh, went to a private high school in New Jersey, and the bulk of my uh, grade did a year abroad. I chose to do a year abroad in Israel in religious seminary, but for college credit, so academic study. I enjoyed it a lot. Stayed a second year, enjoyed the country and the culture, the people, the friends I made. I stayed a second year in the religious seminary. And I had permanent residency status because I was on a student visa for a number of years at that point and received a draft letter um, and enlisted. I I followed through with it, ended up in the 931st Infant Brigade, served as a machine gunner and a sharpshooter in different roles, Um, spent most of my time on the Israeli-Lebanese border. And there were a couple takeaways, which I, uh, you know, I left the Army with. Um, And I'll point to two of the more salient takeaways. The, the first was, and, and this is an overarching philosophy, which which you take away, I believe in any military, but specifically in the in the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, which is it's irrelevant to to some extent how the job gets done. It's important that the job gets done and that it gets done right. 
So there's a lot of room for, for innovation and creativity, um, but it's important that when it's all said and done at the end of the day, when the dust settles, the job is done. Um, and at the same rate, a, a lot of what you're asked to do seems you know, near impossible, incredibly tough, very, very difficult. Um, but at the end of the day, what, what you notice is one step at a time, you take the first step towards the goal, and then you take the second step. At any point in time where you are on that map start to finish, you, uh, you know what the next step is, and you take that step. So, for example, the, the first hike you do is three kilometers, about a mile and a half. Um, and you're carrying about 40% of your body weight for a guy like me that's, you know, well over 100 pounds. And the three kilometers, the mile and a half, they do it uphill, seems near impossible. You get to the end and you're, you're basically toast. Um, you know, at the, int- at the introduction to training, you know, the last hike is, is 72 kilometers. So around 40 miles. And you're thinking, I did three and it killed me. How am I going to do 72? Um, the answer is one step at a time. You know, they say, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? That's the answer. And that takeaway applies to everything in life, specifically a lot of the business transactions, which I do, where I have the end goal. I know the first step, don't know the second step or the third, but at every juncture, you make those decisions. Yeah. The second thing I learned, which I haven't discussed extensively before, is how to interface with, with government as a, as a machine. Um, it's an overarching body with a lot of smaller people making decisions with a lot of power um, and, and very little very little oversight. So you learn to, to deal with not the government, but the people within the government governmental body. So from a real estate perspective, you know, there, there's a set of codes and there's somebody who writes the codes and then there are the inspectors who enforce the code. Um, you're, you're not dealing with the authors of that code or the people who wrote it and their intent. You're dealing with the inspector at the lowest level who interprets it, who cites you, and who writes it up. Same thing with the zoning officer. They didn't write the code. They're interpreting it, and they have a whole lot of power. Um, so you learn how to deal with the people, the actual cogs in the machine as opposed to the machine itself, and have to basically develop those relationships and, and make sure that you, that you work together well so that you can actually accomplish the goals that you both need to get accomplished. That might be the best answer of anybody I've ever heard uh, when talking about how to deal with governments and specifically, which we'll get into how you deal with them in real estate. Um, Let's talk a second about, uh, before we get into all the meaty stuff that I know people want to hear, how did you get into real estate? Um, What was your kind of pathway into real estate? So going way, way back when I was, um, I was probably between 10 and 12 years old. Uh, my, my grandfather, old German Jew, um, raised depression era in Germany, moved over to the United States during, during the war. Uh, he was on the board of his, uh, co-op association in, uh, in the Bronx and they were paying an immense amount of money to do a whole lot of different stuff. And, and one of those was document retention and document management. And during the summer, he hired me as, as an agent of the board for $10 an hour, basically to go through all old contracts, see what contracts had expired and what had lapsed and what there was warranties on and basically shred the old documents that were impertinent and file the new documents. And by doing this, um, I got to make some money. I got to spend a lot of time with my grandparents and he saved a fortune of money for the, for the co-op. 
And that was my first exposure looking through a lot of contracts. I, I was a kid and it was basically going through the dates, going through what they were for. Wasn't tough work, but it was it was definitely at that age it was pretty intriguing. And he to a large extent explained to me that my job was to be there to save money for the for the co-op association. And he was able to use me. I was able to get paid for it. I got to spend a lot of time with him doing it. And he explained all the shareholders in the, in the co-op got to got to basically reap the benefits of that. And it made everybody happy. And, you know, a lot of the stuff I saw him do during during those days, he was retired at that point. He spent a lot of time working on the building with figuring out where to save money for the building. Because once again, all the apartment owners shared in those expenses, uh, himself included. It was rolled into a monthly maintenance fee. And his goal, he was unhappy before he joined the board, unhappy with the way the financial picture of the building was. And he came in with his Depression-era mentality and said, we're going to cut all the fat and save all the meat. And uh, I, I learned a lot from that experience. That was my first exposure. Yeah, when you think about that Depression-era mindset that so many folks have, um, it's so valuable. And it seems like one of those things that the world, especially kind of as we're living in today, a lot of people are, it's almost polar opposite, not because people you know might not think it's smart it's just been a different reality that we're living in um and so i'd imagine kind of bringing that depression era mindset to real estate which you do has probably served you really well yeah it, it's it's been very good and and one of the things that i've tweeted about is, is replacing all the toilets in my buildings when i come in anything at least pre-80s um, i learned that directly from him it was something he literally did it was before the era of led lighting but if you were around to do that, he would have done that as well. And his take was, this is purely wasted money. Nobody's reaping any benefit from this money spent, and everybody can reap the rewards of it being saved. There are fringe benefits, both environmentally and, and socially. And that was something he did. That was something he lived by. And there's a lot of agency risk in, in terms of living in a, in a, in a co-op like that, where the electricity and the heating bills are, are paid for in common. Meaning, if you hypothetically wanted to burn through electricity mining Bitcoin in the building, you, you basically share the expenses with everybody else. The electricity is paid in common. But his goal was, you know, let, let's see how we can save that money. Um, and, you know, as opposed to everybody sharing in the cost, everybody sharing yet in the savings. Yep. So we, we tried to do that ourselves. Um, same same way with the toilets. Um, and a lot of it is preventative maintenance, whether that's sealing roofs and, and resurfacing driveways, um, keeping up with the CapEx and the maintenance and preventing the, the uh, large costs from arising or at least deferring them as long as we can. And, you know, being very prudent uh, on our expense side, it, it's something, you know, if we, we apply a cap rate to everything. The real estate's worth a multiple of its income. If I can save a dollar on electricity, I added, you know, $15, $20 of value to that building for every dollar I saved. So it has a multiple you know, factor, a multiple factor on it. And once again, we can do it without impacting anybody's life negatively. So that's that's the win-win for everybody, as opposed to raising rent, where somebody feels a pinch, somebody else feels the gain. The easy dollars are the ones in, in cost cutting. Yep. Well, thank you to uh, your grandfather. He's obviously shared wisdom with you that's benefiting the world today. And Hopefully somebody listening to this today will take that mentality to projects they're working on and the message will continue spreading. You left Israel and then you came back. And as I recall, 
you when you were entering the job market, I think you said that you could either get into investment banking or there are lots of things you could get into. Let's just spend a couple minutes on what you did uh, prior to launching your company. And then I'm going to ask you about some of the lessons you learned kind of going through the great financial crisis. Yeah, so um, I'll start at the beginning while I was still in college. Uh, wanted to earn some money while I was there. I studied physics and quantitative economics. Um, and to a, to a large extent, I thought I might be a petroleum engineer. There were high salaries there. Uh, and as I was uh, starting my summer internships, I, I took a look at those jobs. They were all out in, <laughs> in North Dakota or in Texas. And family-wise, uh, I had a lot of pressure not to, not to go out there. And I didn't. Um, so the first summer internship I took was in accounting. Um, I was working for uh, an accounting firm in, in the city, and it happened to be a, a large proportion of their clientele were in the real estate space, specifically in the city. And of that large proportion, those were primarily the accounts I handled. Happens to be there happened to be a lot of Israelis involved in real estate in New York City. There's a huge concentration, and being that I was bilingual, that was certainly an asset. And uh, you know, I, I one of my main accounts were two guys basically flipping three families in Brooklyn. It was a really hot market. They were buying them for $150,000, $250,000, putting in you know, $100,000, $200,000 of work and selling them for five, dollars $600,000, making nice profit. And I actually got to co-invest in one of their deals early on while I, while I was still in college. That was a great experience. And another one of the experiences was um, as, as real estate owners, um, we, we run a high leverage generally as, as an industry, say, you know, three to one leverage, 75 LTV. And, but at the same point at the holding company level, there's a whole lot of equity there. So if you, if you run a billion dollar asset value company and you have $750 million of debt, there's another $250 million of equity there. People wanted to borrow against that. Uh, there was a, a crunch for yield as, as there's been for the past decade. And people were, were basically selling what, would look like mezzanine debt, but at the company level, at the holding company level, not at the property hold co level. And a lot of those bonds were sold overseas, specifically in Israel on the Tel Aviv Stock Exchange. And our accounting firm was hired to do those audits. So I got to encounter a number of billionaire investors uh, all across the spectrum doing these, uh, these you know, second position, I guess, uh, bond offerings. Um, a lot of big names, Gary Barnett, Joel Wiener have done them. And a lot of them went through the firm that, that I was working at. And, you know, it, I, doing the audit on these prior to issuance, uh, I, I went through dozens and dozens of appraisal reports, primarily on New York City real estate, understanding what drove the value and what supported those bonds um, and interfacing with the overseas rating agencies to try to, you know, support the valuations and the and the cash flow at the company level to show that these bonds would would be paid off and the values were sufficiently audited and supported by 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 the equity held by the held by the holding company. I love that. Um, and that, that was that was while I was in college. It, summer internship turned into a part time job the next year and the subsequent year. And upon graduating, I, I took a job at what was then ING, ING Investment Management, which ING for a couple of days at least was was the largest bank in the world. I believe it's Dutch Bank, and I 
covered equities on the buy side. I, I covered REITs and financial institutions. So I, I got a little of the corporate side there. Um, and past that, I, you know, my most pertinent experience was at, at Fitch Ratings on the heels of the recession, as you mentioned, where uh, I, I built out the post-recession models for residential mortgage-backed securities and then subsequently moved on to commercial mortgage-backed securities. And I, I think this is what you were alluding to. Um, when you're underwriting mortgage-backed securities, uh, the presumption is, is you have a pool of bonds. Some of those bonds are going to default. Um, that's, that's just the fact of life. You have a pool of 50 bonds, you'll get at least one or two defaults. So what we do is, and what we did there was, we calculated probability of default on each loan and, you know, a, and a probability of loss. Not every defaulted bond results in a loss. Some, some of the, not every defaulted property uh, loan, some of them recover. Some of them are sold off and the sale proceeds, the foreclosure proceeds are sufficient to cover the, uh, the debt and pass that the loss severity. On the ones that do lose, how much will they lose? How much, you know, in the liquidation will the collateral, how much of the loan will the collateral cover? And the outlook I received there to a large extent was, you know, when we, when we looked at each loan at the loan level analysis, it was what's it going to take for this property to default on a loan? And, you know, you're, you're, you, if you think there's any significant probability, you don't like that loan, you kick it out of the pool. But if it does default, you know, how much are, are we actually going to lose as the lender? And, you know, that basically, that, that formed a lot of my mentality going into real estate, which is, which is how can I avoid default? I think I've mentioned the statistic a bunch of times. Um, people ask the data I looked at was from Trepp and Reese. Um, over 90% of, of recession era, um, great recession era loans that defaulted were at the balloon. It's very easy to make term payments, even if you have to kick in a little bit of capital. But when the market's gone down, you've got to do a refinance because the balloon on the loan hits and your property doesn't appraise, you're talking about bringing significant amounts of cash to the table. And that's where the majority of the faults happen. And that forms a lot of my outlook. I, it, within my portfolio, I have very few balloons, balloon loans that balloon before 20 years of maturity. And at that point, you've amortized the vast majority of the loan. If you started at 80 LTV, at that point, you're, you're down in the 30s, assuming no capital appreciation, to which point you should be able to refi. So, my outlook is let's see how I how I not how I make money. Let's see how I avoid a default. That's always my first question going in. How can I avoid a default on this loan? Okay, so um, a couple questions on on the twenty year piece. That's mainly because most of your stuff is residential. Uh, do, are you able to get these twenty year loans on anything that you have that's uh, like pure commercial, or this is this all for your residential properties? So no, I, I have on commercial too, uh, and, and this is a conversation that's been up to the boards of multiple banks. Um, the, where almost all my loans amortize on a thirty-year basis. Uh, the agency loans, the majority of them, are fixed for a set period of five, seven, or ten years, and they float out to year twenty with a, a capped interest rate. On the commercial loans, I, I basically the way I worked it out with a bunch of the local lenders is. Hey, you're happy to have this loan. You want to hold it for the long term. Instead of having a 
most commercial loans in New Jersey are either five-year term or five plus five, which is 10 years with rate reset at year five. I always approach them and say, give me a bunch of rate resets, but let the loan amortize over 30 years. Let me have rate resets out to 30 years. And, you know, there's a compelling argument to be made to banks for doing that as well as for not doing that. Um, without going into why they shouldn't do that, because I'm not here to convince my lenders not to do that. <laughs> the compelling reason to do that is the loans on your book, the leverage is decreasing, so the collateral quality is, is higher as time goes on. So why wouldn't you want to keep me as a customer for, for 30 years, as opposed to having me shop the rate every five to 10 years? You know, once again, the asset value is increasing as I pay off the loan. You know, the the, the the debt service, you know, it will be better. The ease of refinance becomes better. Keep the loan on your books. And uh, I've successfully convinced quite a few banks to create that bespoke product for us. And, you know, I suggest everybody do it. They're not opposed to it. This is the golden nuggets that come through on the Fort podcast right there, folks. Do you think that the country or the banking system or the financial system learned from 08 and 09? When, when I hear that so many of the defaults didn't come from tenants that weren't paying rent. It came from, you know, the appraisals headed um, on the way down and people were giving back properties and it created a total mess that I'm not saying it could have been avoided, but a lot of these folks probably should have kept their property and there would have been a lot less damage and, you know, craziness that ensued. Obviously that created opportunity for a lot of people, but if this were to happen again, is, has there been anything kind of legislatively or anything that you've seen that would say, you know, that's not the smartest decision to let everybody give a property that's producing cash flow back because some appraisal went down or, you know, could we experience this again? So there's a strong difference here on the residential and the commercial side. I'll gloss over the residential and then focus on the commercial. On the residential side, uh, the, the underwriting standards uh, have been tightened up a lot. Uh, a lot of the, you know, the 100 LTV or 110 LTV mortgages and the silent seconds and all that other, the all-day scratch and dent loan pools have basically been eliminated. And the credit quality for, for the borrowers has, has gone up significantly. In terms of home valuations and appraisals and preparing for a drawback, the rating agencies incorporate that. As a guy who worked on those models directly, am I confident in them? Not particularly. If the people at the rating agencies were able to directionally predict home prices accurately, uh, you know, they wouldn't be working at rating agencies or banks. They'd, they'd be, you know, trading S and P K Schiller futures <laughs> for a living. Um, you know, the, the the hot vibe back in the early two thousand tens when I was working there was Canada's in a bubble; it's about to burst. You know, same people would argue it's still in a bubble; it's about to burst. How far does it go down? Nobody knows, you know, people predict home prices based on, you know, income sustainability. We've blown through a lot of those historical benchmarks and it persists, not to say it won't go down, but basically to a large extent, the credit quality of the borrower has increased um, with less of a focus on the actual collateral itself. On the commercial side, it's a little bit different. Um, because foreclosures don't affect homeowners and to a large extent don't affect tenants either, regulation has been, you know, much more sparse. Um, some of it has been some degree effective. Banks are required to basically retain risk in CMBS transactions, basically hold a piece of the lowest tranche in securitization, the highest risk piece. 
So that would induce banks to be a little bit more cautious lending. But as long as there are buyers of these bonds out there, the market kind of determines credit quality required to lend us on these assets and the pricing. So there hasn't been that much. And I'm not necessarily opposed to, to the fact that the government has not intervened so strongly. From a local bank lending perspective, uh, commercial outperformed residential in, in the Great Recession. And, you know, a lot of the credit quality has been relatively clean with, with local banks. A lot of commercial properties continue to generate income. So, you know, do I see a ton of exposure? Not, not, not really on the bank side from the, from the commercial property they lend to. A, a lot of it's just clean product that historically has been. It's been a, a great place to lend. And, you know, there, there's a limit to how much you, you can intervene there. Um, considering that the local banks don't hold, in general, residential mortgages on the balance sheet, um, their options are, are basically consumer debt, commercial real estate debt, and business debt. Um, of those three credit pools, the, the commercial debt is probably the cleanest compared to small business debt and, you know, and consumer debt. So, you know, considering the spectrum of where they can place their capital, it's, it's not a bad place. All right, let's move into what you're doing uh, today. Let's set the stage with you're a uh, maybe would we call it a, a a generalist by asset type, but a hyper focus on market type. So can you set the stage for the market that you're operating in and maybe provide some you know data points to kind of you know give us a summary of of what the market's like that you're operating in? Yes, so that's that's a pretty good classification. I operate in northeastern New Jersey geographically. That's as far south as, say, Newark, Elizabeth, and up to the top of the state. And I operate only in the eastern half of the state. So let's call it the northeastern quadrant of New Jersey. And it, once again, as you said, um, I started off with multifamily. I kind of got thrown into the other asset classes, um, and I kind of got thrown there was deal flow in those asset classes. There were fewer investors out there. So, you know, I learned to manage a couple of deals. And the way my focus kind of, kind of works is, oh, I'm very reliant on brokers for, for deal flow. From time to time, we've sourced our own deals, but that's, that's not the norm. Um, I don't spend my day cold calling owners and prospecting for, for business. Um, so when you have a relationship with a lot of the brokers out there and they know who you are, they know who you close, you know, I, you get deal flow within your region because um, brokers are regional. A lot of them are asset class specific, but a lot of them are not. They'll take whatever comes their way or their colleague next to them, you know, who sits in the same office, deals with separate asset class from them and they want to co-broke it. They know they have a solid buyer, so they deal with that. Now, Similarly, New Jersey, like many other places, is, is, is pretty fragmented, and the laws apply at a municipal level. So whether you're dealing with a warehouse or a medical office building or, or classic multifamily, you're dealing with the same set of the same building department, the same zoning office, the same housing inspectors, whoever it is. So the relationships, both with the brokers, both with government agencies, and with the lenders, and basically with everybody else you're going to deal with, the attorneys, they transcend the, the asset classes, but they really don't transcend the region. Uh, my brokers are, are kind of worthless if dealing with, say, Florida or Baltimore or, or Texas. They, they don't have any leads there. 
they have tons of leads in New Jersey. Same applies to my attorneys and my lenders and my appraisers and my insurers and, and everybody else who I work with. So I found a lot of ease in terms of, of growing and continuing to build it has been by focusing on this region and being the guy who will be there and buy everything. Earlier this year, we, we bought a 20-acre farm. Um, why it was in our region, the numbers more than made sense. The broker knew us uh, because of who we were, and we, we closed on the deal. We were comfortable with the, with the local building department. We And once again, getting a, getting a Jersey bank to lend on a farm, not easy if, if you're not an experienced person. Um, if you're an experienced person within the realm of, of New Jersey and you have that relationship, very easy to work with. If I went, went out to buy a farm in you know Kentucky, maybe the bank's more amenable to lending, to far, lending on farms, but they have no clue who I am and they're not interested in working with me. And once again, that Kentucky broker is not going to send that deal my way. So having a hyper-focused region has basically allowed me to establish a reputation across the, the, you know, the, the universe of professionals who I deal with. And that reputation kind of self-serves, self-perpetuates, and, and has done a lot for us. All right. So we're up in New Jersey in the, the, the eastern quadrant, northeastern quadrant, and you have become kind of famous uh, for doing what we'll call deep value deals, but you also do your, your multi. Let's just talk a little bit about, I want to bring up uh, some of the, the recent deals that you've been doing that you've been buying that you know 99% of buyers would look at and say, I'm not touching that. And that is kind of a portfolio of gas stations. Why do most people look at that and say, I pass? And why do you look at that with a big grin and starry-eyed and go, I'm, I'm going in for that? So the scariest, the scariest word to almost any real estate investor is contamination. Um, environmental contamination is, is very often a black box. And... You know, there's a whole set of regulations and a whole industry of professionals who make a lot of money to clean these sites up. And very often you can't get financing on them. It's a years long drawn out process. It can take decades to, to successfully clean a site. And it basically scares everybody away. You got to buy them in cash. There's a second element in New Jersey, which is assumed environmental liability, which is what you have when you purchase property with contamination pierces the LLC and becomes personal liability. So that's that's a major red flag to every investor. Um, and it's a legitimate red flag. Now, the issue with a lot of environmental companies is the majority of cleanups they do are not for landlords per se. They're actually for end users. So a dry cleaner who owns the facility and contaminated it over the years, now he wants to sell it. They do the cleanup in preparation for the sale. So it's a one-off it's a one-off deal for the environmental company, and what they do is basically they extort the property owner, and what they do is they submit a proposal to clean it as clean as possible so that you can basically, you know, grow vegetables in that dirt and eat it and, you know, drink well water from the site. That's not our goal here, and our, our goal is, is a couple of things. Um, it's one, it's to get the site clean enough to be usable for whatever use we want. Basically an unrestricted, what they call RAO, remedial action outcome, which doesn't mean the site's clean. What it means is the site is clean enough 
that it won't impact other sites and it won't impact residents at that particular site either. So it's basically, as opposed to fixing the wound and stitching it up, it's let's stop the bleeding. The cost to do that is exponentially less. Um, the other thing is we're a repeat client for our environmental vendors. Um, we have a lot of pricing power there. Uh, and the third thing we have is generally the environmental company subs out an immense amount of the work to the excavation, the soil disposal, and a lot of the other peripheral work. A lot of that work we subcontract ourselves with existing vendors. Um, they're not professionals at, uh, at soil trucking. They do it, they subcontract with people, but we also have our own vendors. So generally, we do a lot of work um, ourselves, and they oversee it, but we're also cleaning it to a lower standard, and we're doing it for cheaper. Um, now, what we like about these gas stations and some dry cleaners is that generally a gas station is in a 100 by 100 lot at the corner of a, of a main intersection on a well-traveled road. And what that means for us is you basically have a, you know, a beautiful multifamily development sitting there waiting to be developed. You know, a lot of times it's, it's 20 units over, over some retail space with parking underneath. Now, these sites are, are, are beautiful. Now, what, what often ends up happening is we, we realize that there are, you can clean fast, you can clean slow. Cleaning fast is, is expensive cleaning slow, or as they call them in the business, is natural attenuation. So, you know, like I've said, uh, gasoline is a volatile organic compound. It decomposes re relatively quickly in the span of decades, as opposed to a span of, of, you know, centuries or millennia, as opposed to, say, PERC, uh, petro and tetrachloride, dry cleaning fluids. So a lot of times you can sit on these parcels, do a minimal cleanup, take out the affected soil, you still have contaminated groundwater, but the site will self-remediate. Um, the water will self-remediate over time. You don't have to do anything. You save a lot of money that way. Meanwhile, you rent it out as a mechanic shop. The gas pumps are out, but the garage bays are still there. You gener generate a sufficient return. You sit on it, you wait, it gets better each year. And five to 10 years out, you're, you're ready to build. You have clean soil and clean groundwater. So we're able to buy these, generate a good return, and, you know, and just hold on until they're ready to develop. We're coming around developing some of them already. And, you know, we didn't start all too long ago. So you have a lot of people selling out of the business. You know, the gas station business is not what it used to be. Um, you know, the Costco's and the, the Wawa's of our region have, have put out a lot of smaller guys. A lot of them are retiring. And, you know, we're, we're able to lease them out, generate solid, solid rents, buying them at a huge discount and basically allowing them to self-remediate for the most part um, as opposed to actually going out and doing the work. And that, that's been a big play for us. And so when you're buying them, you're just leasing them back. They're still leased to the original gas station tenant. So you're clipping a yield for the most part while you're holding. So, so generally, honestly, they're, they're, they're generally, generally vacant um, or there is, or there's generally somebody, normally the EPA in New Jersey or the DEP, breathing down their neck saying, we know it's contaminated, you're still pumping gas, but we're going to shut you down. So generally, there is no tenant there. Now, what we'll do at that point is we'll buy it, we'll take out the tanks, because the tanks are the source of the contamination. So once again, we'll stop the bleeding, 
So we'll remove the affected soils, which doesn't cost that much. Groundwater is still contaminated. We'll fill it back in, rent it out to a mechanic shop, um, put in a couple of permanent wells, and continue testing. We'll, we'll test at the beginning every couple of months. As we see the levels decreasing, we know all the affected soils are gone. If we see the levels going down, we'll uh, wait wait until the, the groundwater levels are are you know beneath the, uh, the 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 minimum standard for remediation, and we'll go out to try to build it. But generally, we're getting them vacant. We've seen an endless demand for auto body shops and mechanics. Um, you know, our goal is to make sure they're not contaminating it any further, um, and we're we're pretty vigilant about that. But we're getting them vacant. But we've we've seen an immense amount of people, an immense amount of demand to rent these spaces. And what are you doing for the cleanup itself? I know you go in, you take out the tanks and you take out some of the soil, but you were saying it can take, you know, five to 10 years. What's actually taking place over that five or 10 years that's kind of cleaning it up over time? So so when you take out the affected soils, um, you still underneath, whether it's on top of bedrock or within the, the groundwater, we have higher water tables here in New Jersey, you have contaminated groundwater. And groundwater, basically, it flows. It doesn't flow quickly, but you still may have pools of contamination on top of bedrock that are still sitting there. Now, oil's lighter than water, so when it rains, this stuff basically, you know, either decomposes on its own or it flows out. It kind of gets diluted out. Um, one of those two things. So we'll have testing wells there. But, you know, o- over time, it self-remediates, whether that's, you know, once again, degradation of the, of the volatile organics it vaporizes, um, or it's uh, or it's it's getting diluted out in the groundwater. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, CREmodels.com. That is the letter C, the letter R, the letter E, models.com. If you aren't familiar with CRE Models, they are a real estate financial modeling and due diligence firm that specializes in bringing an institutional process to small and mid-sized firms who are raising capital. Because of their extensive experience with large clients, they really make it easy to look professional and polished when raising debt and equity capital. If you have a substantial deal pipeline, use CRE Models for expert due diligence, lease abstracts, financial models, physical due diligence, books and records, and more. They can handle any property type from multifamily to commercial to self-storage or really anything. With CRE models, we send them all the financial info we have on a deal and they will review and tell us what is missing. This really allows us to focus on the deal structure and we can trust them to jump in as they're an extension of our own firm. You can get in touch with CRE Models at CREmodels.com or call them at 201-252-7487. When you talk to them, remember to ask about their 360-degree analysis team and the real estate technology integration services as well. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, explaining more about their platform. When we started to look under the hood of these real estate investment managers that were telling us about their problems, one of the things that we identified was that 
kind of the operating system of record for managing a lot of the most important information was still spreadsheets. They have never been designed to be a system of record, right? And and when we when we started looking at kind of why real estate reporting was the way that it was, what we found is that spreadsheets were being used as a system of record. And the problem that that created was it makes it really hard to take this information, get the information out of spreadsheets, and get it into the hands of the people who need it the most, which are your investors. You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjunipersquare.com for more information. That's S-E-E juniperquare.com. And now back to the show. And are you doing those with investors or do you usually do it with your own capital? I'd imagine if you're trying to present, you know, a performa or a projection, it's one of those things that it's like, well, it'll be clean when it'll be clean. And at that point, I'm assuming all these become multi or you might have some other use. Like, how are you, if you are raising capital, how are you doing that? And, and what are investors expecting? So on these deals, um, these, these, the equity is all coming from, from basically me. Um, and the reason why, is once again, you know, we, we, we're pretty prudent in terms of testing sites. Um, Let's say we miss the uh, the source of the contamination by a couple of feet when we're testing, and it's a lot worse than what we expected. Uh, I'm looking at you know seven figures of personal liability that pierces the LLC. Very hard to to quantify and qualify that risk to to an outside investor. So I do it myself. In terms of in terms of money, quite often we're taking we're taking uh, we're, we're taking uh, bridge loans or hard money. For the for for the actual acquisition. Now, once again, once you once you've waited a year or two and you see that the that the the, the groundwater samples that you're taking have declining levels of contaminant in them, then you can actually go out to a regular bank and finance that. Because once again, you're showing that trajectory, you're showing that you've addressed the source adequately, and that's declining. So take an escrow for the remediation fees and the ongoing monitoring, but then you can you can pretty much immediately a year and a half in cash out and, and go ahead with it. We have had some sites which have been worse than we've anticipated, but nothing that's been bloody and nothing that's, that's nothing that's really hurt us at all. So that's, but once again, until you start digging, you don't actually know. And even once you dug and you took out what you thought was affected, a lot of times there's that last lurking tank that's still leaking that you didn't see that you go back a second time and you, you end up finding. So, so it's, these deals are just not suitable to outside capital, unfortunately. And then maybe when you're ready to develop, you might go raise capital if you wanted once you have a clean site and a clear path to a project that you can adequately predict kind of risk and everything else. So to be honest with you, I mean, it, it would be hard to do that, to recap my own property with investor money at, at, at a higher valuation because obviously these go, these go up in multiples once they're clean and ready to develop. At that point, you know, you, you've doubled or tripled your equity in, in the land by by taking something contaminated and turning something clean. Generally, there's enough equity to go out and get a construction loan to cover the cost of development. And on our first two, that's that's generally what's happening. And just one final question on that. The reason you're getting a bridge loan at the buy is because most lenders at that point, a traditional bank isn't going to lend on a property like that. Or is there a reason why you take a bridge at the get go? Yeah, the, the banks just won't lend on it. And generally, to be honest, your conventional bridge lender is not going to touch it either. Um, because once again, 
the liabilities are basically not capped. So these are personally guaranteed loans, and our goal is to get them into non-recourse as soon as we have it clean, everything's good. But when the bridge lenders are lending, they're lending to me with less of a less of a concern as to the as to the collateral quality. Um, because at the end of the day, in all likelihood, they won't foreclose on the collateral. We bought contaminated properties in foreclosure. They generally don't go to auction because what happens is, is um, generally nobody will bid on it and the property will end up owned by the lender. And what happens then is the lender ends up with this environmental liability, which oftentimes is in excess of the loan amount. So they get sold through receivership or through what's called special master in New Jersey, depending on the scenario. But these properties are not something our, our bridge lender would even foreclose on, even even were we to default. They'd have to figure another workaround. So from a lending perspective, it's very niche. Um, and you have to assume the collateral actually has a negative value to it as opposed to a zero residual value or, or something north of zero. It, it may have an actual negative value associated with it. Got it. And does the city or the state or federal, is there any incentive from the government? Are you getting any money from them or is there any tax incentive or anything for you to be doing this cleanup or this is all on your own dime and the state pats you on the back for doing it? So that's actually a great question. There used to be huge incentives and what they what they were were basically grant money that they'd give you three, four hundred thousand dollars to clean it up. And that money would be a loan. If you continue to operate, if you successfully cleaned it and continued operating it, um, basically they would forgive the loan. What happened was is a, a lot of less than honest environmental engineers were blowing through the money, not actually cleaning it up. Um, and basically those loans became liens and uh, and the owners were stuck with them with a contaminated property, be a couple hundred thousand dollars in liens. And a lot of a couple of our properties, I wouldn't say a lot, we've basically bought for next to nothing because you know the property's worth four hundred thousand. There's three hundred fifty thousand dollars in liens. We'll pay fifty grand for the property, assume the liens. And once again, even if we were to leave it contaminated, we'd be able to rent it out for five, six thousand a month. We'll get, you know, extra taxes and insurance, a fifty percent return on it. Um, but obviously we're we're going in and cleaning it. We're cleaning it out of our own pocket. Um you know, it's it's expensive. We we don't get a line of construction from the from the lenders, um, but once again, the, the payoff is in multiples, so it's it's good capital, it's good equity capital. Yep. All right, let's talk a little bit about some of the multi stuff you've done. I'll kick it off with. I don't want to say tricks, but when you're looking at a multi deal, the type that you're looking at, uh, what what are you looking at? And then what are some of the things that Mark does to properties that maybe not everybody is doing that maybe where you're finding deeper value than, you know, the average person buying this stuff? Okay. So multifamily deal comes across my desk. What I generally ignore is, is the going in cap rate and the going in financials. In fact, I tend not to look at them. I tend to develop my pro forma without looking at them. And my pro forma is what it should be in, say, three to five years, right? So, uh, so I see the unit breakdown, and I know the general condition. I know what they can rent for. We're in a rent-controlled market, so, so a lot of times the rents are below market. And therefore, you know, when it's priced on going in cap rate, a lot of times it, it hides a lot of the upside. 
So I want to see where I'm going to be before I even look at the price and, and the cap rate and all that other good stuff. I want to see where I'm going to be in three to five years when I've successfully increased rents, you know, in, in alignment with the statute and turned over a couple of units. Um, you can summarize that with basically a price per door because, you know, there's not a huge discrepancy between one and two bedrooms. Mixes are, are, are kind of homogenous across the, across the asset class. So you get a range of a price per door, which summarizes, you know, what, what your, your going out cap rate is, what your stabilized cap rate is. And then, you know, if, if, if I can get to where I have to be, as long as going in cap rate um, justifies and can service the debt, um, and there's enough upside between the price per unit I'm paying and it, what it's going to be worth um, on the way out, then it just comes down to a little bit of stress testing. What happens if cap rates expand and rates go up? And if the deal works, the deal works. So it's it's not a incredibly finessed methodology. It's what should these units rent for? Then we then we apply cap rate to what they're rented for now. I don't mind paying a, a market a market cap rate or even an above-market cap rate, as long as I know that there's significant upside in the property. And once again, the upside comes from one or two places. It's either revenue increases, those are rent increases, maybe some amenities or, or expense cutting. And we're generally pretty on target with, with, with our pro formas on the expense side. We're, we're always within a couple of percentage points. We, we know what we're paying per unit for water or for heat or for insurance. Um, we're pretty on key with taxes. We've been successful appealing where we've needed to. Um, and then the game becomes once we once we purchased it, getting from the current rents to the market rents. Um, and that's that's you know rent control to a lot of to a large extent has created our opportunity. We have people who you know we we have really we've had very strong tailwinds in rents in our market. We have some you know tired older generation owners who. Are split, you know, 2015 rents of a thousand dollars for a two bedroom when our most recent two bedroom rented for 1500, um, and we know we get four percent a year statutorily. So let's say we just go with that statutory four percent increase. I know at year five I could refi out all my equity, get 100 percent of it back, one or two turnovers, and I can do that in per year, and I can do that in two or three years tops. So that's what we're looking for. We're looking for buildings basically where the rent is not in line with the market. And that's that's been our go-to on all multifamily. We we want to see rents that are that are depressed. On the rent control side, and I had Moses on recently, is it is it the same laws that they have in LA where if a tenant is in a rent controlled unit, they basically have the right to that unit for as long as they decide to stay in it? Or is there a different law that um you know, you're able to do something to get the unit vacant, redo it, and kind of move the rents? Or is it kind of the same across the country? It, it, by us, it's if you're in a rent control unit, you basically have a right to that unit for life. Even if it's not rent controlled in New Jersey, you can't evict without cause. And a lease expiring is not cause. You either have to stop paying or, or you have to, you know, commit some crime on the property or create a dangerous situation. Um, but that said, just because a person has a right to a unit for life doesn't mean that unit is suitable for them for life. And generally, you can create turnover through through incentivization. And that doesn't mean necessarily paying tenants in cash to move out. What it might mean is you have an elderly person on the fifth floor of the building. 
you have an available apartment on the first floor. You redo the apartment on the first floor, you make it beautiful, and you t- tell them, hey, I can move you down to the first floor. You know, maybe the first, maybe they're paying 900 and the first floor apartment's worth, say, 1250 You give it to them for 1100 So you up that unit, but at the same point, you got that second unit vacant. And now that that fifth floor unit's vacant, you find somebody in the adjoining u- in the adjoining apartment who hasn't had an upgrade also in five or six years, you bring them over. And within a building, you can create that vacancy and create that turnover. You may not get everybody to market immediately, and you may give it to them at a, at a slight discount for market, but you create that dynamic and that momentum and that movement. And once again, 4% on a, on a $900 base versus now you gave it to them below market at 1100 4% at $1,100 you know, base is, is, is a little bit higher. So it's, it's a game of inches. But if you're diligent and you do it right, the turnover occurs naturally on its own, and some of it you can push along. And since you're a long-term holder, you know some people would say you never want a building 100% leased. Uh, what's your answer to that? Should a building be 100% leased, or should it not? So that's something I, I vehemently disagree with. I, I target 100% occupancy. Um, you know, I, I could give you a number of reasons why. Um, but the primary reason is I'm not actually out there to maximize every dollar of rent every single time. Uh, I'm there to, you know, looking at the larger picture, uh, I've given away units for well below market, you know, 10 or 12% discounts to tenants that always pay, tenants that pay on time, tenants that are not obstructive or destructive, because in the long term, that that saves me a lot of headache in the long run. So uh, I can be honest, our rents, that we're leasing at are probably 5% less than what the market is on average, 5 to 7%. But on the other hand, I can tell you on the converse, I'm running A, lower vacancy, and B, lower bad collections. Because once again, I rather rent it for $50 less and have a choice of the 300 best tenants as opposed to having the choice of five mediocre tenants who want to lease that unit. And I'm, I'm happy to give away a little bit of the upside. It's a fair trade. And in, in, a, in a sense, you're rewarding tenants for being good tenants. And at the same rate, when a tenant has a unit that's a couple dollars below market in the rent control market, the last thing they want, the last thing they want to do is get evicted, right? The last thing they want to do is get thrown out. If you've got $900 rent and anywhere else it can be $1,300, $1,400, you're going to be a pretty darn good tenant because you, you don't want to lose that. So even you know, And it doesn't have to be a $300 delta there. For a $50 delta, people don't want to move out. So I'd rather get the long-term stable tenant and not maximize it. And at that rate, I'd rather be full. Yep. Effectively, by offering a, a lower rent but but better tenants that are paying without the turnover costs, the vacancy costs, the marketing costs, the commissions, you're able to create a win-win where effectively, since you're a long-term holder and not trying to flip out of these, you're probably making more money charging a lower market but having 100% occupancy than this constant game of whack-a-mole where you're turning over units, uh, paying leasing commissions, you know, uh, having vacancy for you know days or months on end. Um, it's kind of a win-win scenario. Yeah, a hundred percent. We always run for a hundred percent vacancy, uh, for a hundred percent occupancy. Excuse me. And um, you know, we that's 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 our goal. I I rather take a slightly lower rent. Look, and sometimes it's not even slightly lower. I rented a three-bedroom. About a week ago for seventeen fifty, I know I could have gotten nineteen fifty for it. So yeah, you can tell me on the cap rate. I, I threw away tens of thousands of dollars 
first of all, it's not true. If I go with that 4% increase on the 1750, I'll make up a lot of that in, in a single year. On the 1950, that market, a year later, I'm not going to be able to give that person a 4% increase necessarily. So I'll, I'll catch up in, in, in a year, but at the same rate, I've gotten a much better tenant. I've leased the unit a lot faster. And what, what did I give up? I, I gave up, you know, $2,400, which if I left the vacant an extra month, it would have cost me, say, that $1,750. So I really only gave up a few hundred dollars. And by the next year, I'm, I'm, I'm back at market. So I, 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 I rather not maximize the rent dollars. I rather fill the unit with somebody who's going to be good and constructive and beneficial to, to the property. I love it. I'll ask you one more question on the the, the tenants. I, I pulled this tweet, um, and I think it's awesome that you do this, but you said, New Jersey has a voucher program for ex-felons. We have provided housing for a dozen people looking for a second chance, and we've only had one problem. Uh, one, kudos to you. Two, um, can you talk about how you would underwrite an ex-felon? I'm, I'm all for a second chance. How do you underwrite them? And then I'm just curious, when you're dealing with an ex-felon, do you have to let the rest of the building know that an ex-felon is uh, joining the, the property? Yeah, so, so I'll caveat this. One of the, one of the types of ex-felons this program does not, does not give to is, is, is sex offenders, um, which if it did, that would be a major concern of mine. Um, but the, the, the individuals we've generally taken some of them have, have sat for, for murder or for aggravated assault or, or for other pretty major crimes. Now, a lot of the screening on these programs, and I'll, I'll tell you, I, ha I haven't done a background check for residential tenant in probably five, four to five years. Um, at this point, we know who our tenants are. The majority of our, our tenants come from internal referrals, somebody's cousin, somebody's friend. And generally, we get a very good sense from a five-minute meeting with the tenant. These people are generally screened, pre-screened by the program. Now, prison for, for an individual can go in one of two ways. It could be formative and turn the person into a lifelong felon from, from a single-time offender, or people can learn the hard way, get out, and reform their life. Now, if you want to go in the second route, there has to be somebody with outstretched arms to receive you um, by the exit door of the prison. So that's what these programs are for. They're people. They're they're for people who you know use their time in prison judiciously. They either pursued a degree or they pursued vocational training, and they they actually warrant a second chance. They've done their part already, and the program itself does ninety percent of the screening that we have to do. Um, so at that point, the, the goal is really with these people and the way we we manage these individuals is to try to place them in a, in a building that'll foster their their own self-development and growth. So I wouldn't put 30 to 40 of these individuals in one building. I don't want to turn my, my building into, you know, a, a basically a house for ex-convicts and, you know, expose people to their old lifestyle. I want to give them a new lifestyle. So on the contrary, I'll put them in buildings with a bunch of functional and happy families to, to where their exposure is not to drug dealers or to, to criminals, it's to you know functional and, and happy individuals, people who who are gainfully employed. So the screening is is relatively nominal. Once again, it's it's a meeting. I get to meet them for a couple minutes, 
and basically let them know I'm giving them an opportunity um, and that they they probably deserve that opportunity if they even, you know, get to sit in the room with me. And, uh, you know, and basically what we ask from them is they have their own caseworker throughout throughout the duration. When you run into an issue, call me or call the caseworker. Don't call anybody else. We're, we're here to, to lend a hand. And we've gotten a few of those calls. Um, you know, one of them is my neighbor's loud. You know, I'm really losing it. You know, I have a short temper, which is fine. We'll move you to another unit. Um, we're not going to move that neighbor. We're going to move you and we'll give you another suitable place to live and we'll work with you as opposed to leaving them to their own resources. Because once again, they, they use their own resources for years to get by. Um, their resources are not like our resources and they don't end as well. So, you know, it, it's been very beneficial to both us and them. The programs pay their rent. We don't get any delinquency. And generally, they, they've been phenomenal tenants. And we have very little bad to say about these individuals. That's awesome, man. I'm assuming when they call and they say, I have a short temper, you don't follow up and go, what do you do when you have a short temper? <laughs> no. When, when, <laughs> I'm when, when, when they call, it's, it's thank you for calling. And <laughs> most of them have my personal cell phone number. When they call, I pick up. And generally, it, it's it's a three or four minute call. All you have to do is say, "Hey, we'll take care of the issue. We understand." And you know, we get calls from all sorts of tenants, not just ex felons who have noisy neighbors. And uh, you know, the majority of, of what you deal with in multifamily is is trying to deescalate and try to find a solution that works for everybody. Um, you know, and you know, if that means we pay their moving expenses to go to another building. It's fine. We have the labor. We can do it. It's a few hundred dollars. And, you know, and once again, we, we like the programs. As I said, we like Section 8. We, 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 we like all the programs, mental health programs. They pay the rent. They pay on time. And as long as you can manage the tenants, and that, that's the key, is don't let the tenants manage you. You manage them. And they, they do very well. All right. I want to circle back. we got a couple more topics I want to cover, but I want to circle back to the government is a machine. And one of the things that I've learned from you through your talk at Reconvene, when we talked at Reconvene, uh, but also on Twitter, and you and you did a great job of kind of laying it out at the beginning of the episode, was the government's a machine and the people that you're dealing with are not the people that ultimately made uh, the decisions for the code, they're just interpreting the code. And you've kind of created a, what I'd call a beautiful system for how to deal with people. So just explain kind of how you work with the cities and what are the things that you're doing and that you've learned from that others could kind of learn from on how they should be dealing with their uh, city governments. So yeah, so the the three most frequent in governmental and interactions which which we have are with housing authorities, zoning boards, and uh, and inspectors. I'll, I'll start off with the inspectors, actually. You know, the, the inspectors are out there generally for one or two reasons. One is they're driving by and they saw you. The other is because a neighbor complained. And generally, the inspectors have a, a pretty negative attitude towards towards landlords. They, it's very rare for a homeowner to be cited with a violation. Landlords, they'll cite right and left. And the reason why is there's the attitude, and it's not unjustified that a lot of landlords just don't care. They could not care less. They're there to milk properties. Um, so a, a lot of what we do is, you know, if we get cited for pests and rodents, the last thing the inspector wants to hear is, look how filthy this apartment is. 
you know, it's the tenant's own fault. Now, 95% of the time, that's what it is. We have an exterminator on a monthly basis, and the messiest department generates rodents for everybody. But that's the last thing they want to hear. What they want to see is, you know, three hours later, you have a licensed exterminator there. You send them the receipt. And in that same email, you write, obviously, we address all issues as they arise. Just so you know, we've had a persistent issue with this unit as well. Uh, you know, insofar as we're addressing it and we don't want the problem to spread, this has been a consistent issue with this particular tenant. But that said, we'll address it as opposed to saying, hey, the tenant should pay for it. Same thing with clogged sewer. Um, generally, a lot of landlords charge the tenants to snake. We don't, we don't charge our tenants to snake our pipes. Um, uh, maybe it's maybe it's not as great for us financially, but at the end of the day, we, we just don't do it. it. It's you know it's a big headache, and yeah, we'll we'll find all sorts of grease and hair and, and other stuff that never happened in your my home. They don't treat the apartment like they treat their own home. So you know if the tenant decides to call the city instead of calling you, you respond with the invoice from the plumber saying it's been staked, the problem's been addressed. You can confirm it with the tenant. You know, here are two or three other receipts from the same tenant. And, you know, once again, we haven't charged them, but just, you know, it's an ongoing issue and we're dealing with it. And that's, that's a lot of the interaction with the tenant, with the inspectors. And what happens is, is after four or five of those citations where they realize how quickly you respond and, uh, and, you know, they're able to gauge that, you know, 20% of the time it is our fault. We missed something. You know, there, there's a crack in the sidewalk which developed over five years and we just never noticed it. You know, even on those 20% of the time where it, where it is actually our problem, or let's say they forgot to take the garbage cans in after, after, the, after the trash pickup, you'll get a courtesy call, which is, hey, I know you take care of everything. How come you miss this? And it's, oh, let me go take care of it now. So it's, it's dealing with the individual and trying to break away from the crowd and to, to trying to present yourself as, hey, I'm the guy who takes care of issues. Um, in, in terms of permitting, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I haven't shied away from the fact that we don't do every single bit of work with permits. It would be near impossible. But we don't do egregious work without permits. Um, because, once again, then you're the guy who does work without permits. That said, if you pull permits on all your major jobs, and the inspector comes by on the job where you didn't pull permits because he thought it was minor and they happen to see you carrying in some, some pipe or whatever, it's, oh, yeah, this is a guy who pulls permits on everything. He must have forgotten here or it must be emergency work and it must be an under exception. You, you get a call, hey, you should probably pile permits as opposed to getting a stop work order. So once again, it's managing the people because, once again, if they want to cite you for stuff, you know, they can walk any building in the entire neighborhood and cite a hundred things. There's always what to cite somebody on. And, you know, going back to, to housing authorities, um, Section 8 tenants and Section 8 inspections, same deal. People fail every single inspection. They don't like taking Section 8 tenants. They don't manage the housing authority. They're not prompt in responses, you know. And, you know, once again, these government officials are not incentivized to give you a break or to not give you a break. They're incentivized to check off on their list that they did exactly what they're supposed to do. So if you make their job relatively easy, a lot of times they make your life easy. And that's been a lot of our interface is trying to get the reputation as a person they don't have issues with. Aren't you known for, um, I, I believe it's when you go to a zoning case where there could be a discrepancy in how the code is interpreted 
you have been good at seeking out maybe the folks that wrote the code and having them be your consultant to go forth uh, when you're making an argument. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So with zoning boards, which I didn't bring up in the last response, we take almost the exact opposite approach, which is basically the strong arm approach. Um, because at the end of the day, there is, you know, going in front of the zoning board, everything's seen in its own light and they're anti-development, the ones we deal with at least in any light. doesn't matter. You go for 50 units, they're going to cut you down to 25. You go for 25 at the start, they're going to cut you down to 10. That's, that's what they do. That's the way they're trained. That's what, that's what they want to do. So with them, we take the opposite. We take the strong arm approach, which is we're going to show up. We have what's called RSIS in New Jersey, Residential Site, site Improvement Standards. Um, they're subject to interpretation. We, we bring a professional who wrote the code in traffic. And when the zoning board says our township in, engineer interprets it this way, our guy can basically say, well, your township engineer is a moron because I wrote the code and there's no possible way to interpret it that way. That's the way we go. And it's set up for the appeal just in case they deny us that when we go to court, we're going to win. So uh, that's kind of a fine line you have to walk with government agencies. So the zoning board knows us, but they know us in a different light. They know they know us as people who aren't going to back down and that we're going to fight everything to the very bitter end. And we're going to get exactly what we're entitled for. We're not going to ask for an inch more, but we're going to get what we're entitled to. So that's that's the other element of government. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, um, for better or for worse, we've had our fair share of, of, of lawsuits against the government in many different lights, and we have our fair share of wins to show for it. But once again, when you know that you're not going to win by being nice, then you come out with force. And we, we, we've done that our, our fair share, and I, I wish it was a nice approach. But once again, we've had meetings with uh, what's called technical review committees where we've been blessed by, by the zoning officer of the city and then the board has basically said, we're denying you under any circumstances. So that's that's where we come out in force. Got it. All right. We'll end on, um, I think, a topic that uh, everybody uh, in the real estate world likes to go back and forth on. There's opinions all over the board. But why could it sometimes be smart to overpay for a 1031 exchange? I think 1031s, uh, the naysayers say, you know, people would rather lose money than pay the government. You know, people are always overpaying. But you made an argument recently that said it's okay to overpay and you backed it up with some math. The 1031 exchange, basically, if you sell the property, you sell property with big capital gain. And let's assume there's some depreciation recapture in there as well, because there, there, there always is, right? If you're selling for a gain, almost by definition, if you held the property for any substantial period of time, there's some recapture there. Um, you know, uh, you know, you're going to pay a, a hefty burden in taxes. Now, so at, let's assume, let's give the case where you have almost zero basis. You've held the property or accelerated depreciation, you're going to lose about a, a quarter of that. To the government. Um, the other option is to invest that tax-free and compound it for the longest for a longer period of time, potentially perpetually. You die, your kids get a step-up basis for your heirs, whoever they might be. So you can afford to overpay because once again, o- overpaying still over the long run will net you a higher cash flow um, at the end of the day than selling it, paying the taxes, and reinvesting the money post-tax. So 
not saying 1031 and overpaying is, is always appropriate, but when you do the analysis, even with a gun to your head, you have to overpay a little. If your residual cash flow in return is going to be higher overpaying as opposed to investing with a, with a smaller amount of capital, it's, you know, at this point, it's not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of pure mathematics. There's, there's, there shouldn't be any debate here. And honestly, I don't see why there is. In my eyes, it's, it's clear as day. Case closed. I, I, I'm with you. I'm falling in, in your camp. All right, man. This was a treat. I feel like I've just learned from, from a professor. You are uh, unbelievable talent and the Twitter community and, and the rest of us are, are lucky to, to hear you speak. So thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it, Chris. Thank you very, very much. And look forward to seeing you again in person, whatever that might be. Yep. I'll talk to you soon and hopefully see you soon as well. Likewise. Thank you. All right, Mark. Have a good one. Everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.